an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, the search for phantom cannons buried by the Army in the Evergreen State. And while I was sitting around the fire, I saw something in the... It didn't look like a log, but it looked like a log outside the firelight, and they went over there, and it was this little uh, cannon barrel. And then, from the archives, checking into one spooky hotel. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And at 6.37, it's time for All Over the Map, our Friday morning look at quirky places that make Washington weird. And here, with a half dozen half-baked facts about Winlock, Washington's world-famous giant egg, is our soft-boiled resident historian himself, Felix Bunnell. Good morning, Dave. You know, roadside artifacts are a great way for a community to distinguish itself. I think about the old pink tow truck or the elephant car wash sign or the twin teepees. Um, those are all gone, of course, but the giant egg in Winlock endures and is marking a birthday this week. Winlock's in Lewis County, not far from Chehalis. It was founded back in the 1870s, named for Winlock Miller, the territorial surveyor. Also, it was the center of a pretty big egg and poultry-producing region 100 years ago. And as of 2019, Lewis County is still number one in the state for egg production and number 244 among counties nationally. Hmm. So in honor of this birthday, I have some uh, half-baked facts, a half dozen of them. Let's see how many we can get through in the next minute or so. We'll post them all at My Northwest with a ton of photos from the Winlock Museum. Now, the original egg was part of a parade float. This is fact number one. Stuck on the back of a big truck for a caravan on October 25th, 1923, 98 years ago this week, marking the official opening of the Pacific Highway. That eventually became U.S. 99, and many parts of which still exist. Winlock wasn't on that highway, so after the caravan, the Big Egg was put on display on a base next to the railroad tracks. Fact number two, Winlock likes celebrating highways. They organized their first Poultry and Egg Day back on August 13, 1921, to mark completion of a road connecting Winlock to Cowlitz and Toledo. Egg Day marked its centennial this past summer. Fact number three. The original 1923 parade float float egg was made of wood with canvas stretched over it. It didn't last long in the weather out there along the railroad tracks, and they actually built a new one, either from tin or some say from concrete or plaster. And in 1944, as the war was ending, a new egg was made out of some kind of plastic. Hmm. And fact number four is kind of sad. In July 1958, the 1944 egg fell off its platform and, according to the newspaper, quote, crashed to the ground in a heap of rubble. Oh, no. After almost 35 years, Winlock is suddenly without its iconic symbol. Fact number five, that egg was actually gone for about seven years. I had no idea until I discovered this yesterday. The Lions Club pitched in, raised money, and built a new egg that was installed in May of 1965. That's good. Now, fact number six, another West Coast city that claimed egg capital status in the 1920s was Petaluma, California. They call themselves the world's egg basket. What? (laughs) I know. In Petaluma, a farmer built a statue of a giant hen, also originally for a parade, but in 1918, five years before Winlock's giant egg. Wow. Now, her name was Betty, but she only lasted about 20 years because on October 27, 1938, that's 83 years ago this past Wednesday, somebody dynamited poor old Betty and blew her to smithereens. And this is an actual quote from the front page of the local newspaper the next day. It might be one of the most unintentionally funny lines I've ever read. I'm going to try and get through it without breaking up here. The blast startled customers at a restaurant called The Colony, situated about 500 yards south of the former chicken. (laughs) 
I love that phrase, former chicken. <laughs> anyway, they've never had to say former egg, fortunately, about the big egg in Winlock. It's still there. It's still it's there. It's 98 years old. It was painted with an American flag after 9-11. It was painted with a Seahawks logo during their Super Bowl years, which seemed like 100 years ago, but was really only about six or seven years ago. And it's uh, if you feel like cracking me up with your bad egg puns or other yolks, hit us up at the text line and kill, please make, look, make me laugh at your bad egg puns. It, the, the only thing you have not mentioned is how big is the giant egg? Well, I was skipping through that, but it's actually something like here's the here's the actual measurements. It's 12 feet. It's 15 feet long and seven mm-hmm. feet high. Uh-huh. And it weighed 1,200 pounds. Wow. That is one big egg. It Felix, is. Thanks it's, very much. It's, it's ours. Are all the pictures there at MyNorthwest.com, I hope? There, oh, there's great ones. of that Seahawk logo of the uh, American flag and the and a snowy egg on a snowy day down there in Winlock from earlier this year. Yeah, okay. Your job is now to find me a photo of the former chicken. Serving greater Seattle. And now it's time, this being Wednesday, for our resident historian, Felix Bunnell. A long-ago October military battle in eastern Washington, a dusty old book describing a hasty retreat with soldiers burying a prized piece of field artillery so they could get away faster. Add to this some old newspaper clippings reporting phantom sightings of the lost cannon, and it's a story that our resident historian, (laughs) Felix Bunnell, could not resist. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Morning, Dave. Sounds like a good plot for a radio play. Maybe. Sure does. Um, I saw a social media post a few days ago about a lost cannon, something called a field howitzer, which is bronze, about three feet long, and weighing a few hundred pounds, supposedly buried by Major Granville O'Haller as part of his retreat from the Battle of Toppenish Creek over in the Yakima Valley in October 1855. My inner 12-year-old snapped to attention. Anything about a buried cannon, you know, I'm, I'm all over it. I heard of Haller, but not of this battle, which was the first actual military engagement in the Treaty Wars, Back in the mid-1850s, when the U.S. Army was part of the effort to quash indigenous resistance to a lot of bad things being done in the name of Manifest Destiny, I looked at some of the books I have, and sure enough, the burying of a cannon is mentioned in several volumes, really to underline the hastiness of Major Howler's retreat. Now, that social media post was from Shane Riley, who we talked with earlier this year about a mystery headstone down in Buckley. Shane shared some of his research with me, including a newspaper clipping from the Goldendale Sentinel from June 1941 about a sighting of Howler's lost howitzer. Let's see if I'm looking at the article. It says, uh, this cannon said to have been hidden near what is now known as Potato Hill has been the object of many futile searches. Arthur Vincent, pioneer Goldendale sheepman, says he recalls that as a boy herding sheep in that area, he once discovered the old cannon but made no effort in bringing it back to camp. You know, and Shane stumbled across the story of Howler's lost cannon while he was chasing down a rumor about another allegedly lost piece of artillery on this side of the Cascades, which has its own twisted history. I only became interested in this because I used to work for the Forest Service, and one of the old-timer employees was telling me there was a cannon above Greenwater on the Natchez Trail. And uh, I was like, wow, I feel like I would have heard of that before. So I started looking it up on the internet, and there is no record of one being abandoned on along the Natchez Trail. But that repeatedly popped up, Haller's Cannon. And then, you know, it was interesting. I made that post, and there's another guy who says, yeah, up by Government Meadows on the Natchez Trail above Greenwater, uh, a hunter found a cannon up there. So there might actually be two abandoned cannons so in case you're just joining us, let me recap the story so far. There might be a lost cannon over in eastern Washington in the Simcoe Mountains between Toppenish and Goldendale. And there might also be a lost cannon east of Greenwater near Highway 410 on the way to Chinook Pass at a place called Government Meadows. Now, Shane Riley mentioned this hunter 
who claimed to have found that Government Meadows cannon. That part of the story comes from an unknown gentleman who told the story to Gideon Pete of Puyallup, maybe 40 years ago. Now, Gideon Pete is very active with historic Fort Stillicum. He's been reenacting 19th century military activities and you know, firing black powder uh, guns and stuff for years. He and his buddies used to actually search up at Government Meadows for the cannon pretty regularly back in the mid-1970s, but never had any luck. A few years after that, Gideon Pete was staffing a booth at the Puyallup Fair, and a man came to the booth and told him, unprompted, that he and some friends had been hunting elk and were caught in a snowstorm at Government Meadows and had to make a quick bivouac camp. They built a fire to keep warm, is what this hunter told Gideon Pete. And while I was sitting around the fire, I saw something in the... It didn't look like a log, but it looked like a log outside the firelight, and they went over there, and it was this little uh, cannon barrel. It looked like it was brass or bronze, and it was about three feet long. Well, that immediately got my attention, and I said, well, what'd you do? He says, well, of course, you know, so much snow that, you know, we're going to have to get out of there ourselves and couldn't pack this heavy cannon with us, but made a motion to go back and get it in the spring, and, well, he said, we looked all over for it in the spring and couldn't find it. And so I said, well, good, that makes two of us up there looking for it. Why is it in these stories? Someone yeah. always finds Why a thing and they go back and it's not there. Bring his GPS with him and just get the coordinates. <laughs> yeah. I think the satellites were there in the 70s, but the consumer models weren't available yeah. yet. Now, there's an author and historian over in Yakima named Joe Miles. He wrote a book called Kamiakin Country, Washington Territory and Turmoil, 1855 to 1858. He really knows his stuff about the time of the Yakima War. When I told him what I'd heard about the Greenwater Cannon and the Potato Hill or Potato Butte Cannon, Joe Miles said those aren't the only two stories he's heard about phantom artillery in Washington. And when he talked about two cannons being buried, there was another battle, you know, the Steptoe Battle up near the Spokane area. Um, it turns out that Steptoe also had to bury cannons, and in his instance, he did bury two cannons before he made his retreat back to Fort Walla Walla. Now, Steptoe Butte is another part of the 1850s war. It's south of Spokane on the road to Pullman. That's another story. We'll tell that other some, some other time. But Joe Miles says a lot of the stories trace back to a memoir published by General Philip Sheridan in 1888. Sheridan, he's a Civil War journal, uh, general, but he was here in the Northwest during that war. Sheridan mentions Haller, but he says there were two cannons lost, not one, which is not correct. And in 1913, an article appeared in, Olympia, in an Olympia newspaper about rumors of a cannon maybe buried somewhere on the Natchez Trail. And that got people speculating not about Major Haller, but about Captain George B. McClellan and maybe Lieutenant William Slaughter, other military figures here in the, in the Pacific Northwest in that era. Now, Joe Miles, he's a serious researcher. He went back. He debunked all the rumors. He found the record of Major Haller burying a single cannon in the Simcoe Mountains in October 1855. But he also found the record of that cannon being recovered later by the Army. They went back and got it. This wasn't something you could just throw away. Mm. Same thing goes for Colonel Edward Steptoe's two cannons south of Spokane at Steptoe Butte in 1858. As for the Government Meadows cannon, which was attributed to McClellan or Slaughter, Joe Miles says both of them did, in fact, travel over Natchez Pass around that time, but neither had a cannon in their possession. So how did all this get so mixed up? So, you know, documentation-wise, everything was, you know, pretty cut and dried and very clear but when people started talking about those incidences um, and the different soldiers involved I, it, it looks to me like they started transposing the names of the officers and the locations of the cannons and that's how this oral history started to go kind of wild 
So you, you didn't need the Internet for all this misinformation no. to spread. Um, <laughs> but the story has so many classic elements that make it just irresistible. You know, the, the, the forgotten battle, the buried canon. Yes. With all the various threads and the possibilities of you know, human miser- miser- misinterpretation of the facts, does, does part of Joe Miles think there might be at least one phantom howitzer out there waiting to be discovered somewhere in the Evergreen State? I personally don't believe so because um, for the last 30 years, I've seen people with metal detectors just pouring all over, you know, areas of interest throughout the state. And one of those guys would have found it by now, um, I believe, uh, if it existed. <laughs> kind of like a Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's it's hard just to not fantasize about just being out there in the woods and stumbling across some piece of history like that. It would be so cool. Great story. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, a hotel on the Washington coast has ghost cats, unexplained flashing lights, and other visitor amenities. This is Hell's Morning News. <laughs> if, uh, Rachel Bell's story yesterday of demonic possession didn't scare you half to death then maybe you're the kind of person who'd like to take a weekend getaway to a haunted hotel. Our resident historian Felix Bonell is here with a tale of ghost cats and other strange sights and sounds all waiting for you at the historic Toakland Hotel. Felix is brought to us by the King County Library System. Yeah, so the Toakland Hotel, it's down in Pacific County. This is the southwest part of the state on Willapa Bay, south of Grays Harbor, north of the mouth of the Columbia. Now, the Kindred family which is a great name for a hotel operator and for a ghost. You know, get it, kindred spirits, but that's their real name. They opened the hotel there way back in 1885. This was the oldest, uh, this place is the oldest operating hotel in the state. Now, I'd never heard of it till last week. I was talking to a colleague at the State Historical Society, Elisa Law. She's working on the Women's Suffrage Centennial, and she told me she got married at the Toakland Hotel not too long ago, and she loves it because it is haunted. Um, she had a guest uh, the, in the wedding party who was staying in a room where the doorknob kept falling off by itself. What? So if you stay there, bring a screwdriver would be my recommendation so you can just reattach it. That and happens bother. in places that are not haunted. Yeah, but this one kept falling off all the time. There was, there was something wrong with this doorknob. And when Elisa stays there, she says she always gets a visit from an invisible friend. Every time I've stayed there, I've felt the, the, the ghost cat like jump up on the foot of the bed. And then they're kind of like walking around your feet. No cats around, and you'll feel that. You'll feel that anytime you're there. I've stayed there, you know, half a dozen times. I feel it every time. Yeah. And now Nick Krause is the general manager of the hotel. He's worked there for about a year and a half. This is when new owners um, Heather Earnhardt and Zach Young took over. Nick says that one of the furnishings that came with the hotel is a logbook of odd occurrences described by guests going back several decades. There are probably 50 or 60 accounts in here from shadowy figures to taps in the night to, to I saw something in the mirror or something went crashing or zinged across the room. I mean, they really run the gamut um, and largely based around Charlie, the ghost, and room number seven. Those are the two big beacons that that kind of go throughout the last 30 or 40 years, as far as I can tell. Now, we'll talk about Charlie in a moment. Now, room number seven tends to be the most common place where guests witness unusual phenomena. Nick says there's no clear reason why this is the case. There's not a backstory about something terrible having happened in there that they know about. Mm -hmm. Now, I wondered if anybody had ever been scared enough to just pack up and leave in the middle of the night. To my recollection, they've never left, but they have gotten up in the middle of the night. They've inquired. They have uh, two nights ago, in fact, I got an email in the middle of the night, some, sometime around four in the morning from two guests saying there is, and these were the only two guests in the hotel, there is a knocking in the walls at the hotel. 
it has a rhythm to it that is a bit frightening and we're wondering if there's anyone else here if you could investigate if and of course and there was absolutely nothing there was there was nothing to be seen there was there was no one in the hotel everything was locked up tight do now, people go to this hotel knowing it's haunted? Well, you know, this is one of these things. I wondered if I was just sort of being rolled, like, hey, there's this old hotel. we got to pretend that it's haunted and try to get people from Seattle yeah. to drive down there. I don't think that's the case. Wow. I think the, the, their so website— people stay there because they want to stay there, and then they start reporting creepy behavior. Yeah, and those guests, they apparently made an audio recording of this knock. And I've, been, I've stayed in cheap hotels where you hear weird knocking sounds, but yeah. it's not ghosts, right? Yeah. Um, these people were the only ones there, and they, they were actually in room number nine. So it isn't only room number seven. So, so both, people will go to the hotel specifically. Just to be the only guests there in a haunted hotel voluntarily. <laughs> yeah. And and for one thing in particular, because they want to be strangled. Now, there's yeah. apparently ghosts yeah. that tried to strangle people in the back, and what? that that's kind of a weird thing, right? Okay. So those guys, they were in room number nine. So if you try to book a room and you can't get room seven, don't feel bad because the whole place is haunted. And um, now let's not forget about Charlie. Now, Charlie is a different story. Charlie, pieced together through a few different accounts, was around the turn of the last century was a Chinese immigrant. He was a, an indentured servant that es- escaped his indentured servitude um, and found himself working at the hotel, um, staying and working here. And when the folks who were owed his service went looking for for him, they hid Charlie in what is still a small room behind the, now it's where we store the wood, but a small room behind the fireplace. And he stayed there long enough. They ended up lighting a fire and he did die in the walls at the hotel of carbon monoxide poisoning, hiding from his captors, so to speak. Yeah. So um, now Nick says most of what people report feeling there um, and what he's felt it's a sense of not being alone, and he says he's never felt afraid, right? It's not like there's this ominous thing. But mm-hmm. being the independent quasi-journalist that I am, I found some paranormal enthusiasts through a loyal listener of this show and someone I went to high school with. Anyway, I talked to three different people or by email who've stayed there, and one of them, Julie from Seebeck, wrote this. She said, quote, I wasn't comfortable going out of the room late at night to use the restroom, comma. It felt menacing or like something was occurring that was none of my business. So different people feel different things there. Um, now, on a lighter note... <laughs> Nick Krause says that they did get rid of the cemetery that used to be on the hotel grounds. In the 70s, there was a, a great storm, and it washed away a very local cemetery, uh, a cemetery that used to be on hotel property. And some duck hunters that were in the area found three tombstones, two of them quite grandiose, quite, quite large, that we recognize as members of the family of the folks that own the hotel. One was Leonidas Norris, who died in his early 20s of a hunting accident. And another is Albert Brown, who died at nine years old. He actually got stuck in the muck in the bay, and the tide came in. People forget that Washington Territory and early years of Washington State, this was a rough-and-tumble place. There wasn't wasn't search and rescue ready to go and pluck you from the muck if you're a little Albert Brown and you're standing out and the tide comes in. Right. Well, that's not good, though, if the gravestones were disturbed near the hotel, right? Doesn't that release I've seen movies where that – yeah, I think Poltergeist, where they move the tombstones but not the graves. But in this case, you know, as luck would have it, the the – flood washed away the, the actual caskets oh, or any good. remains. So that's yeah. just the tombstones. And the third tombstone they found, it wasn't grandiose like those other two. It's pretty austere, has just the initial CLL marked on it. Uh-huh. Nick says it might have been for poor old Charlie. Um, and since those remains are gone, hey, it's fair game to take those tombstones. They're now used as decorations around that fireplace that we talked about. Oh, of course. And at the front door of the hotel. So it's... Sounds like a good time. <laughs> that sounds yeah, great. I mean, so what, is it, what does it cost to stay there besides your peace of mind? 
Well, it's pretty. I hadn't looked at the rates. It's pretty affordable, though. It's like a regular Washington. Yeah, you know, they have just walk right in, huh? And they do special stuff for Halloween for this weekend and everything. So, but it's it's got great history because it is the oldest hotel in the state, not continuously operated, but there's no hotel that was operating earlier that you can still stay in. And we got some pictures at My Northwest, and you know. And, is, you know, is there a shed full of chainsaws out back? Yeah, they, that, that didn't come up in the conversation, but I'll have yeah. to check with my uh, those uh, paranormal enthusiasts again. But yeah. speaking of scary things, yes, we had our rehearsal yesterday. At yes, the show. we did. I was there. Yeah, and you were rolling your R's so intensely yes. as uh, Waldo Evans. I was getting vertigo. I felt really? like Billy Eilish dancing did on you, the ceiling of Saturday Night Live the other week. Did you like that reading? Or that would, no, I, that was awesome. You, you'd back. read ahead to figure out your character's backstory of having grown up in England. Yes. Now, nobody else had read that far ahead, so you get full full points for that. Yeah, I mean, thank you very much. And Colleen was the Lux girl. Yeah, was wholesome and fresh. Aren't you tired of being stereotyped? <laughs> I am. I would really like a complex character, but that's up to the director. Yeah, it's, it's the script we're working with. But there's still tickets available. MyNorthwest.com slash events. Sorry, wrong number next Tuesday night at Town Hall and live on this station, too, which is very cool. Thank you, Mr. Bennell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, love, you look yeah. lovely today. You can, yeah. <laughs> Must that's be right. Lux soap. It's, it's really exciting to see, buddy, as somebody who majored in gender studies, <laughs> being, being the Lux girl. And, and if I were you, I'd get tickets before uh, there's a run. And if you can't, uh, if you can't find out my Northwest, all you got to do is Google, I think, uh, Cairo Radio yeah. uh, Theater. Town Hall. Play, sorry, wrong number. It all comes up. Yeah. Drama. It all comes up. Even on Bing. Even Bing will find What's that? I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. <laughs>